This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having mentors teaching you their expertise, packing all of their research and all their lessons into a curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is a show that we wish we had a decade ago. The show's about you, so we want you to become the best you can be in every area of your life, of course. And if you're new to the show and you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, especially during our live programs, check out the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got fundamentals of body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, networking, breakups, relationship management, dating, attraction, all that stuff. And we've got our live programs, which we call boot camps, running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. Details at bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. Note the two dots in there. You can give us a call. Number's on the top of the website. Or just email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything. And I'm looking forward to meeting all of you here at The Art of Charm. Now, today, we're talking with my friend, Mike Michalowicz. Don't try to say it fast. You're just going to blow it. By his 31st birthday, Mike had founded and sold two multi-million dollar companies. And then he just basically blew it all. Uh, kind of became a D-bag became an angel investor, proceeded to lose his entire fortune. We're going to talk about how money amplifies who you really are, what overcompensation says about you, how most info marketers don't have squat and lie to convince you of their success, and automating your finances so you don't steal from yourself. And I do this personally. It's worked out really well. And why treating your money like toothpaste can make you rich. So enjoy this one with Mike Michalowicz. Tell us what you do, because, you know, I hate introducing people because I feel like I never do it justice. I mean, you founded and sold two multi-million dollar companies. You yeah. had this great success formula. You started investing. You went broke. Dot, dot, dot. We're back again. You're not broke. You know, you yeah. bought a microphone for this interview with your last $12. <laughs> that was a perfect introduction. I mean, the only thing I think to add is, is the emotional component. You know, when I sold my second business, I was 35 became a millionaire. I was like, holy crap, I I know more than anyone else on this planet. I'm, I'm God's gift to entrepreneurship. Just in other words, I became totally full of myself, a total dick, and had to show my success with cars and joining the club. And, and then I also became an angel investor because like, well, that's what you do next, right? You you now show other people what to do and you give them money and then you become like a billionaire. I just had no common sense Walked into an area I was not familiar with and just floundered big time. I then kind of had this come to Jesus moment where uh, where I lost all my money just by throwing away at businesses and, and trying new things. And um, did you just was, invest in really crappy ideas? Is that how? Yeah, you lost yeah, it? yeah. One was <laughs> romantic dinners in a box. <laughs> so what this business did was say you wanted to have a romantic night with a girlfriend. You could order this. They would send to you same day a box with all the cooking items already prepared for you. You just have to heat it up. But it came with the linens and two champagne glasses. It came with the, with the whole kit effectively. So you could have this home-cooked romantic meal. And um, it sounds fun, but pulling it off, perhaps, pulling it off is really hard. But also getting demand for people to buy that because it was expensive to produce all the stuff at the quality level we needed pack it and dry ice, deliver the same day. You have to charge a person like 200 bucks for this. And 
quite honestly, taking out to dinner is a better choice. Yeah, go get some wait service at a really nice place that she's wanted to go to for 175 and you're saving money and you don't have to heat up in your own microwave. Yeah, that was exactly it. And Man, so, I could have saved you like a million dollars right there. Oh my God, you could save me a lot on that. And it was idea after idea like that. And I was just like, oh, you know, if I'm involved, these will work. Well, I got involved and it made them even worse and then lost all my money and had to, you know, I had to dig my way back out, but learned a lot through that very painful period. You, you and James Altucher can can cry in a one big bowl of cereal about that, right? I think <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> oh my goodness! But I mean, now you kind of look at it and you're like, "Wow!" I mean, you must have learned a ton. You can't lose that much money and not like find Buddha or something. No, you do. I did find Buddha, and you know, money does not make me, and it doesn't make others, and. uh I, now my perception of wealth is totally different. I, I still think it's critically important. We all should uh, aspire to have it. it it's an amazingly powerful vehicle. But if you were a total dickwad like I was, money just amplifies that. So actually what I was saying is money amplifies the, our true self. And then I had no understanding of what success was, no idea of what contribution was. When I got money, it just became more of a tool than anything. But now... As I'm accumulating wealth again, I realize it's really just a vehicle for contribution and, and giving back. And hopefully this go around them a lot more smart with it. And also, by the way, when, when I meet other people, I can sense very quickly if they're going through that phase of where they think money makes you versus using money as a tool for, for good. Really? So when you meet somebody and they're like, oh, I'm rich and I have a Maserati or whatever, you're like, oh, you're going, you're going through the like phase one Phase one, yeah. you get your ass handed to you. Again. Yes. And then after that happens, you go through again and you're like, oh, this is like something that I can either spend on making other businesses good or donate to charities and stuff like that. You don't, not to like show other people how rad you are because you're a narcissist. Exactly it. Yeah. yeah I found it's like poker. And in poker, the guy who's like saying how great his hand is and he's giving all the signals like, oh, he's going to push everyone off the table is usually the guy bluffing because the weak hand has to play strong and hard to scare the people off the table because they're going to lose. Conversely, it's the guy who has a strong hand, the pocket aces, who is like, ah, and, and you'll see his hesitancy in playing weak because he knows that he'll keep people on the table if he's weak and therefore can win the hand. And I found that parallel is true for wealth. The folks that are pounding the chest the most, there's something missing. And, and maybe they do have some money, but they still feel inadequate and, and are using money as a vehicle to show their adequacy. I have some friends that are extremely financially wealthy. You would have no idea. The way they carry themselves, the way they dress, they're just good, regular folks. Yet they dictate this wealth. And I believe they have such a confidence in themselves that they don't feel it necessary to pound their chest and show their cars and all yeah. that stuff. No, it's, it's very true. I have a really, really close friend who we would drove to a wedding together. And he's like, we can stay at my parents' house in D.C. And I'm like, man, we're, the wedding is in D.C. We should probably just get like a motel. And he's like, no, 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 my parents live close enough. Trust me. We pull up to this like baller, you know, Georgetown in Washington, D.C., right? Yeah. So we pull up to this like row house. I mean, like a townhome that is enormous in Georgetown. And I'm like, this is obviously like $8 million or something. I mean, there's no way that this is or four or something. I mean, it's like this is a really nice place and i go in and there's like paintings of paul revere and crap on the walls <laughs> and i'm like 
this is your parents' house. There's literally a moose head above their bathroom that looks a million years old. And he's like, yeah, but they're never here. And I'm like, translation, they have another house somewhere else that's probably nicer. And I'm just yeah, like, yeah. what on earth? And he's so na- like normal and cool. And then I, his wife is a really good friend of mine. I introduced them to each other more or less. And I was like, what's up with the Paul Revere painting? She's like, dude, it's like his great, great, great grandfather or something. I'm like, Paul is Paul Revere? Is that even, that's real? And he's like, she's like, yeah. And I'm thinking, this is a guy who, you know, when we were in law school, was just like a fun, normal guy, just super nice, not pretentious at all. But that's because his family's had money since the beginning of time, and he's athletic and good looking and fun. So, like, he never had to be like, look how great I am. I know. I always, I joke with him. I'm like, if I didn't love you, I would freaking hate you. You're you're just a bastard. Well, I I don't know him, so I'm allowed to hate him. You are. Yeah, you are. And it's funny because there's tons of people like that, and I know lots of guys, they're not even making seven figures or they're turning just seven figures, and they are just the most loud, vocal jerks. And then, like, the first thing they do with their money is they hire a trainer so that they can get huge. And then they're like, I literally read this on Facebook. People used to think I'm a loser, but they'd never say it to my face because I can bench 250 and I I make money. And I'm like, no, you're right. People would never say it to your face because they'd never hear the end of it. They're not afraid of you. (laughs) They're afraid of how much you're going to then prove that you're not that guy and already they hate you. So they're just not interested in even bringing that up because they're not invested in you feeling better about yourself. It's not worth it. Probably many have tried and many have failed. You know, is Margaret Thatcher, I believe, who said in some scenario, she said, if you have to state you're a lady, you're not. Right. And, you know, if we as a state, we are something, we're not. It's through our actions that demonstrate the truth. And it's, yeah, it's funny. So you, I see this played out all over the place. But the sinful thing is I lived it. I was that guy. That's so, why I'm so tall and good looking. <laughs> <laughs> and not fat at all. Yeah, not getting older. Um, it, yeah, man. I mean, you are now running your third million dollar venture. I can say that you can't because then it means yeah, you're not. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> and you've worked for the Wall Street Journal. You You did a makeovers on business which i can only imagine what that looks like and uh you keynote i mean you're you're all over the place now but most importantly you wrote a book called the toilet paper entrepreneur which is a cult classic that might not be most important but that's it's got the coolest title in my it opinion does. it does you know what's cool about it though for me is that that was the first time i stepped into something that i didn't say how much money can i make doing this i said what's the right thing for me to do just because i felt it was fulfilling and so i wrote that book to give kind of the real perspective on entrepreneurship, I, I, you know, a lot of the books I was reading up to that point are extremely academic. They're great books, but it almost feels like the author is like some Harvard professor pandering to you saying, oh, if you just do this and that, and he smokes his pipe. Yeah. And uh, I was like, you know, I want to give the real raw edge of entrepreneurship because by that point I'd seen the upside and the dark side. And that's why I wrote that book. The stuff you shared about me, like, you know, the million-dollar businesses and so forth, that's what I call that stuff. It's our CV, right? And the CV, which people call the curriculum vitae, where it's that one pager that has a bullet point list of, oh, here's the six things you did in your life. I think CV should really stand for covers vomit because (laughs) for me and people I've met, yeah, they have these bullet points, but that's just the peak of a mountain. The, The climb is usually pretty hard and disgusting. And so I'm a little bit gun shy of sharing those things. I mean, you have to qualify yourself so people will listen to you seriously. But I think a lot of people think it's a privileged life when you you have done certain things, which isn't true. 
inevitably the most successful people I've met hands down have gone through some of the darkest periods I could ever imagine. Sure. Yeah, that has to be the case. And I think a lot of times people don't realize, yeah, what they're reading online, what they read from a lot of these bloggers and things like that. Those people are pulling the wool off of people's eyes. I know there's a better expression for that. They're just making this shit up. They don't know. They haven't tested it. A lot of these like, oh, I'll be your mentor via email. Those people don't have any money. 90% are broke as hell. They have nothing. I know. That's what frustrates me about uh, some of the, the info marketers that uh, you see them and they they rent a, a Bentley or they do something to give this feeling of this is the lifestyle that they're living. Oh, yeah. It's just fake. If you got to start a relationship with a lie, that, that's no relationship. If you got to persuade customers with a lie, that's not that, that's manipulation. That's not persuasion. It's unfortunate to see that, but also I think the consumer's gotten smarter and smarter and smarter and uh, can vet out the few real folks from the majority of those yeah. cheesy... Some people are very clever, though. I mean, and you know what? Smart people who like to think, listen to this, are probably not buying into this, but a good friend of mine, he is a luxury dealer, so to speak, a very, very high-end one, mm-hmm. and he will rent you any kind of car, even if it doesn't necessarily exist yet. He'll have it made for you. You know, he'll get the first of this car or he'll get this watch or whatever. And there's a marketer who is, he sells financial products. I'll just leave it as vague as that. And he's always making videos of him with all these fancy things that he quote unquote bought. But really, my friend is renting them to (laughs) him. Yeah. And, And he's renting them to him at a low cost in exchange for him sending over successful people that he knows through say, dude, where did you get XYZ? I didn't even think that was out yet he'll send those guys his way. So he basically gets almost free rentals in exchange for marketing. And he told me this being like, and this guy, you know, his whole thing is look how much money I'm making from all this finance stuff that I'm doing, but he's just an info marketer. Yeah. Isn't it? It's unfortunate. Yeah. It sucks because the idea is look at my new Ferrari when really he's going, I can't afford to rent a Ferrari, but I'll show a lot of people that I just bought one. (laughs) And then when somebody wants to get the same one, I'll send him your way. All right. You know, you know, it'd be funny, though, is I think I would be more impressed by whoever that is if uh, he said, you know, I figured out a way to get these cool Ferraris for no cost at all. It's a rental. Like, that's impressive, you know? Yeah. But to say, here's another thing that's changed about me. I used to be really impressed by the guy at the Ferrari or the Lamborghini because the story I told myself about it. Now, when I see it, I'm not impressed, but I'm not disappointing the person either but i wonder every time like oof i wonder if they're going through i went through where you have to show something because you feel inadequate somewhere else because that's what i was doing i didn't feel adequate community i wasn't feel adequate to hang with the friends i was hanging with unless i was showing success so whenever i see someone showing off something even the rolex watch or anything i'm like hmm i wonder what's going on in their mind and if they're hurting in some way so i don't know yeah now of course it's always about overcompensation Tell us, though, what, what you're talking about now. I mean, you've got a new book, Profit First. Yeah. You know, you've got a bunch of other books. You're an author now. You're sharing your knowledge. But most importantly, you're sharing your mistakes. Now, back to the show. I think, you know, one of the things that we talked about offline was our damaging addiction to axiomatic beliefs, right? Yes. Yeah. Tell, tell me about that, because that's not something most people discuss, but it's something that I definitely look at and go, 
whenever I have a weird belief that seems really black and white or concrete, I always like to poke holes in it because the more I've traveled or met people or created business here at the Art of Charm, the more I'm like, oh, this isn't always true. And the truth is, it's just easier to believe things that are black and white or true all the time, but it's yeah. never really the way things are. It's just simple thinking. It's a simple thinking, yeah. It's the emulation effect. It's, it's human nature to just emulate the other guy. The persuasion definition is called social proof. So we see someone do something, and our mind is wired to do the same thing. And it's a shortcut. It's just a natural behavioral shortcut. So, But sometimes we go down paths like lemmings, down really wrong paths. And so one statistic just blew my mind, and, and it opened me up to this concept of profit first. I was reading something on ESBA's website, and it said that there's 28 million small businesses in the U.S. That's defined by a company that does 25 million or less. So for me, that means every business I've ever owned, everything I've ever done has been small business, and the vast, vast majority of entrepreneurs I know are all small business. And then the article went on, and this is what blew my mind. Out of the 28 million small businesses, 22 are living check by check. And that was defined by that if they don't receive money within the next seven days, that they will fall short on paying one of their bills. If they don't receive money within the next two weeks, they won't be able to cover payroll. And if they don't receive money in the next month, they'll likely be out of business. It hit home because I was like, wow, that, that is exactly how my businesses went. I, they were growing fast, but it was by the skin of my teeth some of these times paying bills. And then it struck me and said, how can 28 million people be smart enough to start businesses, grow businesses, attract prospects, figure out their niche, all these things, but 22 of them have like a missing part of their brain that can't figure out the profit part? Like, do we have something? Like, that, that doesn't make sense that 22 million people can't figure out this one piece. How can it be so consistent? Well, then I started studying, well, what's the consistent methods we're following? And I found that all businesses follow what's called the GAP formula. Stand for generally accepted accounting principles. The formula is something we all know that in our business and in our lives, sales minus expenses equals profit. Or income, you know, if you want to take it to your personal life, income minus expenses equals profit or your wealth. And what I figured out about that formula and why it's flawed is that while logically it makes 100% sense, people, us, we're not logically driven, we're driven by emotion and behavior. And there's a principle, another behavioral principle called Parkinson's theory. This has nothing to do with Parkinson's disease, by the way. But, okay, but, but fair <laughs> enough. I was going to ask. You know I was going to ask. Yeah, different guy. But Parkinson's theory states this, that it's human behavior to increase our demand for something based upon its increasing supply. So, so Jordan, if you and I were discussing a, a contract or something, and you were going to send me a quote, and you told me I'll get to you in one week, it will likely take you one week to get the contract out. If you and I, same people, have the same discussion about the same thing, but you say it'll take four weeks, it'll now will likely take you four weeks to get done. We consume the entirety of the time we make available. Well, the truth is, this isn't just for time. It works for all facets of life, including money. And so when we take sales, the first part of the formula, we put it into our checking account. We see a nice deposit of, say, you know, $10,000 or something from sales. Now, next comes expenses. Our behavior says, ah! I have $10,000 available for expenses. Uh, we pay the bills that have stacked up. We maybe buy a computer or some kind of investment we need to make. We spend all the marketing dollars that your marketing company was discussing with you. It's all spent, and then nothing's left over for profit. So what I figured out is most entrepreneurs, when our sales come in and sits in the checking account, our behavioral tendency to spend it all, 
I said, what if I took the profit first? If I change the formula to be sales minus profit equals expenses. In other words, when that $10,000 comes in, first take a predetermined percentage, 10, 15, 20%, allocate that money to profit, hide it away so we can't steal from ourselves. And now instead of $10,000 for expenses, it's been reduced to $8,000. So I did this for myself and it works. What happens is I start figuring out how to run my business on only $8,000. And when I started doing this with other people, the same behavior happened. When we take that money first, tuck it away, hide it away, our profit accumulates behind the scenes, and now we start running our business more frugally, more innovatively on this remaining money. Huh. All right. Interesting. It's almost like the personal principle of like pay yourself first and, you know, stash it away, get it, get rid of it. Because otherwise, when you see it, you're like, I'm using that. The most successful savings mechanism in U.S. history is the 401k. It's pay yourself first. Employees get, say they get paid $1,000 a week for round numbers. Mm-hmm. Their savings, their 401k, say 15% is tucked away. So 150 bucks comes off the table right away. Taxes are taken in right away. So the government gets their piece. Now instead of $1,000 gross pay, they're getting a net pay of say $600. But very quickly, that individual adjusts their lives to live off $600 a week. But behind the scenes, $150 every week starts piling up. Some people, many people become extremely affluent in their savings, their 401k savings or retirement fund, because they don't have to worry about it. It's been taken out in advance. And I just said, wow, if that works in our personal lives, why don't we apply this to business? And that's what Profit First is. Excellent. Wow. All right. So how come more people don't do that? That's the most obvious question. I'm sure you've had to field that before. I just don't think anyone thought of it. So, you know, sometimes an obvious thing is just not obvious. I, I, I never thought about it. I went 15 years as an entrepreneur waiting for profit to come. You know, I asked my account at the end of the year, was there any money left over? I don't know. It just struck me to, to apply it to my business. And so I started. I think, it's hard to measure, there's at least a thousand companies doing it because uh, I get emails in regularly from readers saying, well, here's what I did. I've counted roughly, I mean, I've estimated this now, roughly about a thousand emails have come in saying, I'm doing this. So and I presume there's a lot more people that are doing it that have never reached out to me. And I presume a lot of people that reached out to me have fallen off the wagon because there's a day when, when you're starting to tuck your savings away into profit first and then then there's not enough money to pay bills, which, by the way, is if you can't pay your bills, that's your business screaming at you. These are bills you can't afford. Find an alternative way. But I'm sure a lot of people, because I did too at times, fall off the wagon, you know, quote, unquote, borrow from ourselves from the profit account that, and put it back in the business, which is – undermines the system entirely. But I suspect there's more and more businesses doing it now than, than ever. And, and my dream, like this would be holy crap amazing, is that of those 28 million businesses, that 22 million now aren't living check by check, but 22 million are following this process of taking their profit first. I mean, that would be badass if that became a reality. Of course. So how do we apply this to our personal life before? Because now a lot of people are like, cool, well, all right, I don't have a business. So I don't care. Yeah, so in your personal life, Get a retirement plan. It's the best mechanism because it addresses two things. First of all, you can put the money in there before you get your net pay. So if you're with an employer who has a 401k, I'm begging you, please get set up and, and do the maximum deduction. It will be painful immediate, in the immediate term because you'll get a little less money in than you've been used to, but the money will start piling up and you'll adjust your behavior. But the second thing a 401k does is it removes temptation. You can't go into that account and just borrow from yourself. There's a penalty you lose a percentage of that money if you take it out early. So it removes the temptation to borrow. So set before 401k, 
And if your employer doesn't offer it, they'll likely offer some form of IRA that you can contribute to, and they can automatically transfer money in. Meaning you set up your own personal IRA with, with whoever you do your banking with, but your employer then could actually put the money in automatically from your paycheck before you see it. Yeah. And why is it important to do that? Because otherwise you're going to spend it, right? Yeah. So if you, if you have $1,000, right, that comes in and it's in your bank account and then you have to move to your retirement plan, it's way easier to say, oh, you know, I want to go out to dinner tonight or let me just push this off and we'll spend the money. It's that behavioral principle. This Parkinson's theory, there's a great analogy that applies to all of us. And it's actually with toothpaste. When we get a brand new tube of toothpaste, we use toothpaste more lavishly. Like you put a long bead on yeah. your... Yeah, you know, that's so true. Yeah, the the initial tube lasts like a month. A month. And so does the last 5% of that Exactly. And you'll see even like if you put a big bead on your toothbrush and then you run water over it to get the tube wet and the toothpaste falls in the sink, you're like, F you, toothpaste. Right. Live in that bacterial-infested, hair-monger disgustingness. But the funny thing is when there's that last 5%, and like you're leaning into the tube, you're biting the edge to squeeze out a bead. And if that toothpaste, God forbid, now falls in the sink. You are you're scraping dying. that off the sink. Yeah, you're scraping it up. You're, you're, don't, don't front like you're listening and you're like, ew, you're doing that. You've done it. I told you all you try to let some stick to the sink because you're like, that's the part that's disgusting. And the rest of it's totally fine. Exactly. Yeah. That's the exact same theory here. If we allow ourselves to have that whole tube of money come to us, it's it's that was tube squeezing. That right. Sound. No, that's a good that's a good toothpaste sound. That was pretty realistic. Like that. That was a catch. It was more ketchupy toothpaste. It was ketchup. Yeah, exactly. But if you brush it's your teeth with ketchup, sound. you're on the same page as us. <laughs> so yeah. So you okay? So it removes that temptation, right? You're essentially you're hiding the money from yourself, and you're yep. making yourself treat your cash like the last piece of that tube of toothpaste. Exactly. And, and you're putting yourself in that perpetual state, and then you become extremely innovative. Uh, you find ways to get the same things done. More money makes us lazy. It's easier to do something just by throwing money at it. But when you don't have money, it forces our mind to think of alternative ways to get the same stuff. And you may even surprise yourself what you figure out. Why, why didn't you tell your book, The Toothpaste Entrepreneur? <laughs> now, in retrospect, I've been better than Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. But you know, it, does, it applies in toilet paper too, right? When, when you have a full roll of toilet paper, it's like... Brrr, rrr, you wrap your whole arm in it. Yeah, and then you just go back you there and... Make a Rambo uh, thing around your head before you do your business. Yeah. But when there's three sheets left, it's like, okay, all right, I'm going to figure this out. And you dig in the garbage can to find extra supplies. Like, <laughs> oh, man. Like, you do whatever it takes. Right, you get, you get a wad of Kleenex and you wrap that in toilet paper to provide an extra layer of... Yeah, Red right. life cushion. Oh, my God. I've never done that. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and because <laughs> otherwise we're going to steal from ourselves. How do we do this down to the details? Because, okay, so my employer is a 401k. I go to HR and I'm like, sign me up for that. And, you know, you learn to adjust. And then meanwhile, you're saving a thousand bucks a month, which you never thought you could do. And you feel great about yourself in 10 years, whatever. What about if what if we don't have a 401k or what if we're doing that already? And we're like, good, I'm all set. Are there other ways to sort of economize? Are we moving money? Because I automate my bank accounts, right? I learned this from my friend Ramit Sati, where it was like, set up these sub accounts, automate certain paychecks going, or certain parts of your paycheck going in like the vacation thing, so that anything left in your checking, you're like, I could totally blow this on, you know, champagne and uh, I don't know, whatever illicit substances you want, and it's okay. I'm not going to go broke. I'm not going to run into any financial issues. Yeah, so I do the same thing with auto transfers. I, f I found there's a little trick. 
on payday, schedule all your bills to be paid that day and your transfers that day. So say it comes in typically on the second Friday of the month. Then on that Friday, schedule all your transfers to clear. Or if your bank is set up a certain way, you may have to do it the day after on Saturday. When the money comes in, you pay all your bills for that next two weeks. Then you schedule your transfers. And now the remainder is your spending money. And if you do it this way, you'll live frugally. If in, Conversely, if you don't pay your bills then and you use your, the spending first, you'll say, oh, I got all this money. I can, I can live more lavishly. And then when the bills come, you don't have enough money left over. So right. it's the sequencing that matters a lot. But part of that sequencing beyond just paying your bills is make one of your air quote bills, just like your friend said, uh, the transfer to the vacation fund, the transfer to other funds you have and experiences that you're saving for. And, and one other tip is I found that on a quarterly basis, we need to reward ourselves. So I have my business, a profit account, but I also do it personally, our personal family savings account that saves up. It's the fund money. Once a quarter, there's money being transferred in every two weeks. Once a quarter, we'll take that money out, whatever's in there, and we just, we get a, you know, quote unquote, blow it, have fun with it, do whatever we want with that money that's piled up. Excellent. Yeah, that way you don't have to worry about it. And this is great because nobody can speak better to how to manage money than somebody who's lost and remade a bunch of it, right? Because you've seen both sides of the same equation. Yeah. And here's what I discovered. I used to have one checking account for my business. Uh, and personally, I had one checking account, one savings account. Now I have like 10. If you go to your bank and set up 10 accounts, they're like, oh, we're going to charge you fees. Call BS on that. Get the manager over they won't charge fees. You can negotiate or go or go find a new bank. Yeah. So my, yeah. my bank doesn't care. I have all these different accounts. But I have one that says vacation fund, one that says Mike's spending, Chris is spending, that's my wife, and Susan's spending, that's my uh, lover. I'm kidding. That's totally <laughs> a lame joke. Yeah. I'm leaving. It's in there, though. It's forever. It's now. in there now, right. I'm like two dumb things I said already today. And then we have the vacation fund. I said we have the going out fund. So and then we have the crazy money fund. So there's all these different little funds that pile up. And it's kind of like my mother used to have this envelope system. Maybe your mom did too. And when she would get money in, she would have one envelope that she would put money in for groceries, another one for give back to the community, one for vacation, one for fun money. Uh, I knew where she hid the envelopes, by the way, as her son. I would uh, borrow from that occasionally. But dividing the money up, what happened is when it came to buying groceries, she always had enough money. Not saying that it was always the same amount. Sometimes it was very little, but when it was very little, that's only money she'd spend. It would be ramen noodles. If there was more in there, it might be a nice dinner coming up. But whatever was allocated was the only money she'd permit herself to use for that purpose. Okay, and that's great. And a lot of people are like, why do they keep hammering the same point? Here's the reason for me personally, having, having you come here and talk about this. I didn't do it for a long time, and I was like, oh, that's theoretically a good idea. And then I went and did it, and I was like, oh, my God, I saved a lot of money last year. And I didn't even notice. And then I look at friends of mine who make more money than me, and they're like, oh, yeah, I don't have enough liquid for that. And I'm like, how is that even possible? Enough liquid. <laughs> That's just funny. Yeah. It's funny because I, I'm like, you mean you didn't save any money? Yeah, I know. I know. You spend a crap load of money on your stupid things that you don't use, and you spend $800 a week on food and stuff like Yeah, I got you. And young people can do this too. You're thinking, I'm barely scraping by. That's the toothpaste thing. You might barely be scraping by, but you can scrape by on even less. And let me tell you something, bucko. If you're barely scraping by, that's the reality for all people. I don't care if you're just out of the womb or you're just about to reenter the earth. 
most people live check by check regardless of their check size. So everyone's just scraping by. That guy with the three houses and the 17 cars, he's just scraping by too. That's the Parkinson's theory, that whatever cash availability we have, we maximize our demand for and puts, a, puts us in a scrape by position. So no matter what kind of numbers are coming in, if you're scraping by, you're proving out this principle of Parkinson's theory. You got to start taking a piece out of that behind the scenes and tucking it away before you have access to it. Yeah, it's just re- it's just a process of fighting your own rationalization where you say, but I can't afford to do that. Here's the beauty. If you start now because you make $38,000 a year, then when you make $138,000 a year, you're saving an enormous amount of money because you know how to use that toothpaste. And if you try to start when you're at $138,000 because you think you're going to have all this extra, you're going to have just as little flexibility in your budget. I know you don't believe me right now, but I know people that do this. I know people that make more money than I do right now, and they can't afford to go on vacation because they're making they're only making $400,000 a year, and they've got a lot of quote-unquote money tied up in different things. They like to say they're reinvesting in their different businesses, but I know how they're spending their money because they tell me when we're crying over their whiskey that they just, you know, they blew this on that and they spent this on that and they took a girl out for a weekend and it was 10 grand and I'm just like, you're a friggin' moron. You know, to admit to ourselves that we're morons is really hard, so we do go with that rationalization. So we'll, we'll use soft terms like I'm reinvesting or plowing back or expanding or growth-oriented. It's all bull. It's all total freaking bull. They're just excuses we give ourselves to make ourselves feel better. Yeah, I mean, the only time I can see when people are like, I don't have that much money is when it's like, I'm getting married and I bought a house. And I'm like, mm. well, you didn't save enough. You didn't plan for it. But I can see where those two things would be quite a bit of an outlay. But normally people just, they can't get married or they can't get a house because they, you know, they spent money on stupid crap for the last five to 10 years. And, you know, I, we will experience those spikes on both sides. We will have expense spikes and we'll have income spikes. There'll be that time where maybe someone wills you money and this huge surge of cash comes in. What I found was interesting about expense spikes is when we have an expense spike, we usually will move heaven and earth to find ways to make extra money to cover that expense spike. Conversely, when we have the income spike, our lifestyle jumps to meet that income very quickly. So all this money comes in, it's like, whoa, I can live a whole new quality of life. But then when the income fades away, it's only a spike after all we are almost incapable of reducing our life back down. So income can go up very quickly and expenses will climb with it just as fast. Income can go down very quickly, but expenses can't. We keep on justifying how next month we'll get the money back. Next month we'll be able to cover it. Oh, I need I need my personal trainer and my come to my house massage person though. I can't I can't cut that. Let's not be ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it's very, very true. And and whenever I talk to finance people, they tell me almost all of their clients grow into their budget. And I think about this a lot when I talk about compensation at the Art of Charm and things like that. And I, I can't get into too much detail just by law, but a lot of times, or at least by ethics, um, a lot of people are like, well, you know, I just can't live this way. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, you do realize that you have a six-figure salary when you include yeah. your bonuses. There are people that raise entire families with like six kids on less than about half the amount of money that you're making. And they're not broken, poor and living in a trailer home or anything. You know, it's just normal. Octomom, baby. Octomom. Octomom. Yeah. But I mean, there's 
I'm not saying you you got to be you know that you're that you're flush that you're rich or whatever, but I am saying how did you get here? Oh, in your new car that you got leather seats in that you got. Do you need that? No, you drive twice a week. I mean, what are you what are you doing? It's so easy to grow into that budget, and and so Parkinson was totally spot on. Yeah, let's whine and complain about other people all we want, but when you're doing it to yourself, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. And when it comes to wealth, I heard a saying that the people that matter aren't impressed, and the people that are impressed don't matter. Yeah. yeah. That's a very good point. That's a big cliffhanger. No, I never thought about that. Yeah. If you're trying to impress people with money, they're like, that's all you got? And if you are impressing people with money, yeah, it's people that are like, I I remember I went to camp when I was little, and um, I you know grew up in a decent neighborhood, and I remember like you know everybody had just decent cars, and they weren't falling apart and stuff. And I remember one of the other kids' moms pulled up in like this kind of not like a beat up Grand Am, but it was like a regular like a Pontiac. No, nothing special. It was kind of dirty because they we were in the country and stuff like that, and it was a white car, poor choice of color. And I remember the other kids from my area being like, oh, that's ghetto. And I was like, whatever, you guys are just being jerks. And then the kid later, somebody was like, nice car, James. And he's like, yeah, my mommy got a Grand Am. It's so cool. It's a sports car. And everybody was like giggling and snickering. And I thought, you know what? I, I didn't realize this for like a decade after, of course. But I was like, you know what? In James' neighborhood, that car is the bomb. His mom is the coolest mom. They got a Grand Am. It's badass. And the kids in my neighborhood are like, I can't believe they drive that car in public. Why do you even have that? Yeah. The aspiration for more stuff, it's particularly in men, is it's a social mechanism that we show our superiority through trophies. It used to be, you know, in the caveman days, the guy that was the strongest and the toughest. Now we demonstrate that by our power with money. And so we feel this almost biological drive to acquire all these things. But there's no end either. There's always someone better than you. No matter what level we get to, you're now in a new social circle where there's someone achieving or financially better off. So it almost becomes this cycle. But this came for me as I was climbing up financially my business and trying to show off more and more. I realized like I'm never going to get there either, which was kind of a depressing thing. But the ultimate realization is it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Very good point. Well, how do we do this brass tax? Let's make sure that, guys, before we leave, know exactly what to do. You walk into your bank, you open up different accounts, and then we say what? Listen, we're going to... When the account manager comes out or the bank manager and says, oh, this is, we're going to charge you a fee, you call BS and you make a big stink and say, I'm not going to pay any more of these fees. Uh, and then you go to a different bank if you have to. I'm saying a little bit in jest, but there's a reality there that those fees, if you allow that stuff to happen, those fees will accumulate. but any of your expenses, almost everything's negotiable. So one of the things to living the same quality of life, but more frugally, is realizing everything is negotiable. Once you have these accounts set up, start the automatic transfers, time it to match up with when your money's coming in. When the deposits come in, you have those allocations, these different accounts and paying your bills all happen at that time. The little bit of money that remains now is what you live the rest of your life off of. Because you're pre-allocating your savings, you're pre-allocating this profit, this wealth accumulation, and you're removing the temptation. Meaning, when you allocate money to your your savings, you don't want it in that same bank account so you can just log in every morning and see it sitting there. It's going to be too tempting to borrow from yourself. Transfer it out to some form of retirement savings or somewhere where you don't have easy access to it and it gets locked up, like an investment fund or CDs or something like that. And uh, you'll start accumulating wealth and you won't miss it. 
very quickly you'll adjust. Very quickly you'll adjust. Excellent. So when we start to do that, we start to adjust, we start to figure this out. Do we then ramp it up or are we like, I'm good, and then let it fly for the rest of our lives? You can start doing what's called a wedge. Uh, this is a technique. I think Brian Tracy is a guy who invented this or, or suggested this originally. And what the wedge is, say you're making for round numbers sake 100000 a year today. Next year you get a nice raise. You're now making 120000 What you do is you wedge 50% of your increase to go exclusively to savings. So now today you're living off $100,000 and, and you're paying expenses out of that and you have a portion of that money going into your retirement fund. Now, when your lifestyle gets upgraded to 120,000, 50% of that 10,000 all starts getting contributed automatically to your retirement savings, and the 110,000 is your new level of income that still goes to pay expenses, still a portion goes to savings. Your life gets upgraded a little bit. There's a little extra spending money, but a massive portion goes toward your retirement. Now, you get next year, say you go up to 140, 50% of that. Which is another twenty thousand, another ten thousand. So now you got ten or twenty thousand cumulative additional going toward your retirement savings. And now you're living off a lifestyle of one twenty. So your lifestyle, kind of day to day expenses, continues to increase, but a significant portion of that goes to your savings. And because you're still getting upgraded every single time, you won't notice the difference. You won't feel that money going away, but a huge portion is. Excellent. And that compounds over time and blah, blah, blah. We won't really yeah. get into that. It's beyond the scope of what we're doing Beyond here. the scope of this. <laughs> but that's excellent. And so we just continue to, every time we level up, you know, take yourself out to dinner, get yourself a little toy or something, but not something that requires you to pay it off over the next five years. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Excellent. And so we start to increase the percentages. And how do we know where we can start? How do we figure out what we can afford? Because I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, there's no point in me just saving 50 bucks a month. And then other people are like, I'm going to do half my income. And then they're like, oh, this is so hard. And then they quit because they're, yeah. you know, both starving. Are mistakes. Both are mistakes saying, I don't have enough yet to save, so I'm not going to do it. And the other guy says, oh, I'm going to go in hardcore. It's like the guy going to the weight room and trying to bench like 350. Right, and then like and can't then, you know, lift for a month. shoulders. Right. So the right thing is to get started, no matter how small it is, with what you feel you can afford. Similar to kind of working out. Just getting to the gym and just going through stretches is actually an effective thing because, because you'll have a success, but you won't injure yourself. So get started, but get started on the, the side of that it won't impact your life. I suggest for people, 1%, 1% of your income, you won't even notice going away. So if you get $1,000 in, literally 1% is $10. You get $1,000 in, say, every week, $10, you won't notice that missing, but it'll start this habit. Then I suggest every quarter, increase the percentage by 1%. So now, next quarter, in 90 days, you're doing 20 bucks. Next quarter, now you're doing 30 bucks every time a check comes in. Then 40 bucks. Within two, three years, now it's $100, $200. You ramped it up. That starts becoming serious money. But because you adjust it over time, it's like the old putting a frog in a pot and then turning on the stove. It, it heats up over time. It doesn't even notice it. If you go in, oh, I'm going to take 300 bucks every paycheck and, and tuck it away, that's throwing a frog in boiling water. It, it just jumps out or sizzles you to death instantly yum yeah speaking of that almost lunchtime man let's is there anything i didn't ask you that you want to throw in there um you know what what do frog legs taste like they taste like chicken obviously a frog leg connoisseur uh, no you asked me everything all right well good where can people find out more from you uh mike mccallowitz.com oh yeah because anybody can spell that exactly exactly Give your best stab at that. Google finds me. I think I'm the only Mike McCallowitz ever to be in existence. So, like, 
I'm the only one. And so it's very friendly if you can get at least close to spelling it. And then uh, the books, Profit First and Toilet Paper Entrepreneur and Pumpkin Plan. All my books are on Amazon, of course. Right. We'll throw those in the show notes as well. Thank you very, very much, man. A lot of people, you know, it seems like a simple app. It seems like a lot of simple things to do. But honestly, this one thing, as little or as big as it might sound, has changed the game for me. Because now I look at my retirement account and I'm like, holy crap, I have tons of dough in there. I can use it to buy a house because, you know, my, it's not just my IRAs and stuff that I shouldn't or can't touch. It's different portfolio stuff that just kind of gets new dough every single month, every single pay period. And, you know, it's like, oh, I need to get married. I don't have to freak out about that. Oh, I want to buy a house. Yeah, that still sucks because I live in California in the Bay Area, but it's not impossible anymore. Whereas before people wake up one day and they're like, I don't have anything. Yeah. You know, and and they're screwed. Yeah. It's usually simple things when applied can have profound effects. And and I know this is one of them because I've been living it for so long now. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you, Jordan. All right, good stuff. I love the financial automation stuff. You know, everything else we talked about, fine and good, but honestly, automating your finances is something that most people won't do. It seems really easy because it is. And if you do it, you will reap benefits that are untold. And I'm, honestly, it's, it's about compounding interest. It's about setting things aside for a rainy day. It's about emergency funds. It's about learning to live on less which is good for you no matter how much you're making, no matter how little or how much. So I hope you guys dug that one. Of course, show feedback and guest suggestions. The show is a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you guys to keep our finger on the pulse. If you know someone is a good fit for the show, let me know. Jordan at theartofcharm.com. If you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Mike on Twitter. We're going to have his Twitter linked in the show notes. Of course, our boot camps, live programs, that is. Details, bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. Two dots in there. And if you're listening but you're not subscribed, then knock it off already. Go to iTunes, subscribe. Go to Stitcher, subscribe, or just go to our website, theartofcharmpodcast.com, and subscribe. It's really easy. We've got iPhone apps and Android apps, too. Theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android. They're free. No excuses. Of course, guys, I love, love, love if you'd go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Oh, and before I forget... Jason Sanderson, our producer here at The Art of Charm, been kicking butt for us. So if you think the show sounds good and you think my voice sounds good, you can thank him as well because he's the man. And if you email me and you say, great production value, Jordan, I will forward it on to Jason. All right, now I'm really done. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 